Mark chapter 12, verse 28 is where we'll begin. So perhaps you spent time with some family this past week, or thought about family. I wonder if you had to describe your family in just one word, what word would it be? That's the assignment. You've got people coming over and you're trying to prepare them for what they're about to step into when they step into your family. Maybe it's immediate family, extended family. What word would you use? You can't use dysfunctional. That's not nice. But there's any other number of words that you could pull from. You might choose the word loyal or funny or crazy or loud. There's any number of words that might work to help describe your family. I, I, I had family in town this week. And it, it'd be hard for me to choose just one because all of these and many more ring true. Jesus was once asked to sum up the very essence of being a child of God. And to do so, he chose one word, and that word is love. Love is a simple word, but it has a complicated definition. It's a word that we use in a lot of different ways with a lot of different nuance. The love with which I love Turkey and the love with which I love my wife are two different loves, and they have to be. So what are we to do with this? Love is a word that we're all familiar with, and we all feel we inherently know what love should look like. But when Jesus says being his child means loving God and loving people, what precisely is Jesus talking about? What kind of love is he describing? And Jesus doesn't leave us guessing in the passage we're going to study today. In fact, he speaks with great clarity about what it means to love God and to love people. And my purpose today in preaching this passage out of Mark 12 is to clarify what love looks like as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not enough for us to just proclaim the headline, I love God or I love people. There has to be substance behind that love. There's definition and clarity. And so what does that love look like? That's what I want to show you in our passage today. Three characteristics of Christian love. These are essential. From the mouth of Jesus, they are non-negotiable. This is what it is for you and I to be people who love. Now, just to make sure that we're all up to speed on where we are in Mark's gospel, let me do just a quick little recap for you so uh, we're all on the same page. Uh, we are in the last week of Jesus' life. In fact, he just has a few days before he goes to the cross. These events take place in the city of Jerusalem, and for our last several Sundays, we've been tracking Jesus through all of these different conflicts. All these conflicts happen on one day, just an awful day for Jesus. Every time he turns around, someone else is coming to attack him. And here's just a quick bullet point list of these five conflicts that Jesus has been dealing with on this day, one day in particular. He's confronted by members of the Sanhedrin. You remember they came and asked him, by what authority do you do these things? And then in chapter 12, he has Pharisees and Herodians, these unlikely teammates, people who normally hate each other, but they can team up to hate Jesus together, and they ask him about paying taxes. Then the Sadducees, last week Pastor Stephen uh, taught on this passage, and the Sadducees trying to embarrass Jesus by asking him questions about the resurrection, which they do not believe in. 
And then Jesus spins right around from that conversation and steps into the passage we're going to study today. And then there's one more uh, towards the end of chapter 12. So every time Jesus turns around, he has someone on the attack, someone who's coming at him. And the passage we're studying today flows right out of this previous story with the Sadducees. Jesus ends that conflict with finality and impressively. And then he turns around to a follow-up question from a sympathetic scribe. I want you to follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. The them is Jesus and the Sadducees. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him. To love Him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that He had answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask Him any more questions. I want you to listen with fresh ears today. To words from Jesus that you've heard a lot and you've thought about a lot. But I want you to hear from Jesus today as if perhaps this is your first time encountering this teaching. And what he gives us in this passage, what I want to highlight for you are three characteristics of Christian love. This is what love, according to Jesus, looks like. And if you're taking notes, first of all, that love looks like this. It is an all-consuming love to God. It is an all-consuming love to God from verses 29 to 30. Our scene opens as that previous one with the Sadducees closes. Jesus wraps up his showdown with this group, and then this teacher of the law steps in to ask a question. And the norm in these situations is for Jesus to get blasted by these guys. They're not coming with sincere questions. They're coming to embarrass him, to challenge him, to find a reason to stir the crowds against him. But this encounter is different from all the others because this guy seems to be sincere and genuine in the question he asks of Jesus. He's not coming to rescue the Sadducees from their embarrassing defeat. And he's not coming to pile on the Sadducees because he himself is anti-Sadducee and he's glad that Jesus made fools of them. That's not what he's about. Uh, What Mark gives us is a man who's sincere in his searching and his desire to know who Jesus is, wants to understand better what Jesus is about. And so he asks his question out of curiosity, not for the sake of an attack. And he asks, of all the commandments, which is the most important? This is not just a random question. Uh, It's actually a common question in ancient Judaism. There's a grand total of 613 commandments in the Old Testament. 613 commandments. Uh, 248 of those are positive commandments, the thou shalls. And then 365 of those are negative, the thou shall nots. And out of all 613 of those, 
Which is the most important? It was a common discussion, a common debate in ancient Judaism. Different schools of thought arose around which commands they felt were the most important commands. Which ones synthesized most clearly and importantly uh, the most important commandments. And it was an important debate, an important discussion, because once you've identified the most important commandment, then you can interpret all the other commandments through that one. It's sort of your north star as you try to make sense of the other 612 commandments that God has given. So the question asked by this teacher is not merely hypothetical. It's intensely practical. What's the first command? And Jesus answers him in verses 29 and 30. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, Jesus' answer comes from the book of Deuteronomy. It's not just invented in the moment, but Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it's a passage of Scripture that was incredibly familiar to Jewish people at that time and Jewish people today. It belongs to a piece of Scripture that's known as the Shema. The word Shema in Hebrew means hear or listen. And it's the first word of this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel. Listen, O Israel. Shema Yisrael. Shema. It's the most important passage of Scripture in all of Judaism. It is the very foundation of monotheism. In an ancient world where gods were as numerous as the stars, you had one group of people who were given this word, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There is one God. He is Yahweh. There is no other but Him. And this passage of Scripture took on such an important part of life in ancient Jewish practice. Uh, It was prayed by faithful Jewish people every morning when they woke up. Uh, It was written on little pieces of parchment and put inside scripture boxes that were worn on the forehead or on the wrist called phylacteries. Written on a piece of parchment and put in a case that you would affix to the door frame in your house. This little case is called a mezuzah. And then when you would leave your house in the morning, you would touch the mezuzah and take the Word of God with you. And when you would return home, you would touch the mezuzah again and carry the Word of God into your home. It's impossible to overstate how important, how foundational, how central that piece of Scripture is to the man who asked this question, to the people to whom he belongs, even to the God who answers him in that moment. Jesus begins his answer by explaining why God is worthy of this love. He could just start off and say the most important is love God, but he didn't. He said the most important is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's why you worship God. This love for God, why would we love him in this way? First of all, because he is the creator God. If he is the one God and there is no other, then he is the one through whom all things have have been made. He's the one who holds it all together, who's orchestrated all things, is bringing human history towards its intended purpose and end. To say, love the Lord, 
is to say he is the God who alone is worthy and supreme and majestic, worthy of all of our worship above all else. The word Lord is a title. It speaks to his sovereignty, his grandeur, his might. He's the one God. If you just ask the question, why would I love God? Because he made you. (laughs) He made this. There's nothing made that he did not make. He alone is the sovereign creator God. Why would you love him? Because he's the creator God. Love the Lord. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, love the Lord your God. He's the creator God. And he is the covenant God also. He's not just the Lord who exists in some far-off universe who winds the clock of the galaxy and sits it on the shelf and then sits back and watches as the gears unwind. He is the Lord, your God, covenant God, relationship God, the God who loves you first. He's the God that knows you by name. He's the God that numbered every hair on your head. He's the God that counts every tear. He is the Lord, your God. Have you ever thought about the atomic power of that simple line? The Lord, your God. It's unbelievable. His love for you. He's worthy of just... Who he is. If he wasn't even your God, he'd still be worthy of all praise and glory and adulation. But he is the Lord, your God, and we can hardly understand what a miracle that is. He's your creator God. He's your covenant God. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? You shall love the Lord, your God, how? With all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. I don't think the intent of those things, heart, soul, mind, and strength, I I don't think we're meant to pick those apart individually. Now we could, we could assign meaning to each of those heart means this soul means this we could do that but i don't think that's what jesus intends by giving these four things to us i think rather jesus is describing all that we are who are you as a human being heart mind soul strength there's nothing else to add to that equation and so when jesus says love the lord your god with all your heart mind soul and strength he's saying you we love him with all of the stuff that is us. We don't give him a little bit or some measure. We, we love him with everything that we are. His covenant with us is an all-consuming covenant. He, he loves the entirety of you. And so that's how we are to love him is with the entirety of us. We love him with all that we are. And he emphasizes this point by repeating the word all four times with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. It's as if he's communicating something to us. We are to love our God with every fiber of our being. He's your creator God, your covenant God, your all-consuming God. I want to tell you a story about some people that have modeled this uh, for me in my life. 
Uh, my wife, Melissa, and I graduated college with some friends named Jeremy and Emily Freeman. Uh, they are husband and wife, not brother and sister, Jeremy and Emily Freeman. And Jeremy pastors a church uh, outside of Oklahoma City, and uh, they have several kids. And five years ago, their youngest son, Trey, seven years old, was diagnosed with cancer. And Jeremy and Emily called everyone in their orbit to prayer, and we prayed. And the cancer was aggressive, and just 10 months after his diagnosis, Trey went to be with Jesus. And for our little, we came from this really tiny college, and for, for everyone in our little community and for everyone in, in the faith community connected to them, it was, it's, that type of loss is always a devastating loss. And the Freemans were crushed by it. But it was remarkable to watch from afar the way they modeled transparency in their grief. They were open about their hurt, open about how sad they were, open about how hard grief was. But they were anchored in a faith in God that had made promises that they believed in. Uh, In the year after Trey died, their family faced several more tragedies. An infant nephew died Emily's mom died. Emily's brother, a husband and father of three, he died as well. Uh, And the whole time, everyone is watching and learning from this man and woman who are resolved to love God no matter what. And then a year ago, uh, their two oldest sons were in a bad car wreck. And the oldest son, his name's Caleb, suffered uh, just a horrible brain injury. And they immediately called everyone to prayer. So everyone began to pray. And Caleb survived the first night to the doctor's surprises. And he survived the second night and several more nights after that. And we continued to pray. And, and then Jeremy and Emily, uh, they created sort of this headline uh, to help guide everyone as we continued to pray for them. Their headline was this, But God. Throughout the history of God's people, God's people have faced all kinds of horrible huge, scary situations, things that would consume and devour them, but God. When God is there, nothing's impossible through him. And so we prayed, and Caleb survived. Three months later, he woke from his coma, uh, but he was just a shell of his former self. But then little by little, Caleb began to improve and grow. He got back the power of speech, and, and uh, that he was able to... Uh, finally communicate again, and it took time, and he's been through months and months of just grueling rehab, and finally, after about 11 months of living in different hospitals and rehab facilities, he was released to go home on his first Sunday home. Uh, he walked into his church with a bit of help, and the, uh, their faith family just went crazy, praising God for the miracle of Caleb's life. He still has this long road of recovery ahead of him, a very long road. But I want to be that kind of man. I want to be that kind of person that loves God from my marrow no matter what. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, that no matter what, I believe. And I trust the one who sees it all. I trust the one who is infinite over my finite life. I trust the one who is the Lord, my God. It is an all-consuming love to God. That's what love to God looks like. But that's not all Jesus gives us. This kind of love is an all-consuming love to God. Second, it is a sacrificial love to others. In verse 31, Jesus continues his answer to the teacher of the law. He says the second command is this. It is love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. So Jesus doesn't stop with just the one command. He gives the second because the second command is inseparable from the first. To know and live the first, to experience the first command is to live the second command. And you can't live the second command without knowing the first command. They go hand in hand together. And this is not the first time the man has heard this line. The command to hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God, that comes from Deuteronomy 6. This line, love your neighbor as yourself, comes from Leviticus chapter 19. It's important to read your Old Testament as well as your New Testament. Leviticus 19, this man is familiar with this line. He's heard it throughout his life. You're to love God and you're to love your neighbor. These two commands together are a beautiful summary of the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments are about love to God. The last six commandments are about love to your neighbor. So to love God and to love others is a summary of Ten Commandments, it's a summary of the 613 commandments that make up all of the Old Testament. So then the question we would ask is this, who's my neighbor? But Jesus has answered that for us, hasn't he? In Luke chapter 10, he's asked that question. A man asks a similar question of Jesus and then he tries to justify himself. He says, who's my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love? And Jesus tells a story about an unidentified man who is beaten by thieves and is left for dead. And a priest and a Levite, these holy men, walk by and they steer away from the bloody dying man out of fear of becoming ceremonially impure. But then along comes this man from Samaria, the least likely of all the heroes of any story. And this is the man who cares for the dying man and makes sure he gets what he needs, he gives sacrificially to get him care and help. So, who's your neighbor? Is it the one who looks like you, who lives like you, who votes like you, who's nice to you, who believes like you, who worships like you? Is that who your neighbor is? No, we, we don't find our neighbor by looking in a mirror. We find our neighbor by looking out the window. And besides, Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question altogether. The question is not, who is my neighbor? The question is, to whom am I being a neighbor? That's the question. The person in front of you, the heart that's beating, the lungs that are pumping, that's the object of divine love through you. Even if that one is your enemy, even if that one is forcing you to march a mile, you go two instead. That's the one that you love. That's your neighbor. Now, I heard a preacher say once that there's actually three commands in these two commandments. 
that the second commandment actually is made up of two commandments. As I say this line, I want you to see if you can pick out the second command in the second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. The preacher said that we have to love ourselves in order to love other people. I understand what he was getting at. I disagree with the sentiment because that's not how Jesus intended this line. When he says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's not calling us to greater self-love. He's just articulating a principle that's true. Regardless of your self-esteem, regardless of how you feel about yourself, the principle is true that you love you. And you don't have to be taught that. People generally love themselves. You got dressed today. Maybe you ate some food. You had some coffee. Uh, you, you did things to take care of yourself because you love you. With that sort of naturalness, that sort of inherent ease, this is how we are to love other people as well. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. So what does that look like? How, how do we know what it means to, to love other people as ourselves? Well, uh, several years ago, a pastor named Don Carson preached on this passage and He went to Leviticus 19 and he said, if we look at the context of Leviticus 19, what's being taught there, then we can understand exactly what it looks like to love our neighbor as ourself. Let me show you a bullet point list here from Leviticus 19, just a few of the application points of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what it means at a minimum. It's caring for the poor, not stealing, not lying. It's being fair in business dealings, caring for the deaf, caring for the blind, dealing justly with all. It's avoiding slander. You're not to jeopardize the life of your neighbor. You're not to harbor hatred against your brother. You are to rebuke your neighbor when necessary for his good and for your good. And you are to not take revenge or bear a grudge. This at a minimum is what it means for you and I to love our neighbor as ourselves. God doesn't leave it to our imagination to figure it out. He doesn't tell us, hey, look to culture and find the answers. He gives us the answers here in His Word. It might look like a story I read this past week, a story about a guy named Todd Brown who sat down in his his plane seat and wedged between the plane seat and the wall of the plane, he found a wallet. Inside the wallet was the guy's ID, uh, and uh, his name was Hunter, just 20 years old, and inside his wallet was his most recent paycheck and $60 cash. Todd wanted to make sure that the wallet got back to Hunter, so he just kept it on himself. And when he got off the plane and got home, he put it in an envelope and uh, included a note that said, hey, I found this on my flight. I thought you might want it back. And I rounded your cash up to an even $100 so you could celebrate getting your wallet back. Now, love of neighbor in the Jesus way is more than just random acts of kindness, but it's at least that. Love of neighbor is the sacrificial giving of yourself for the good of the other. It's an attitude, but not only an attitude. It's an affection, but not only an affection. It is action as defined by Jesus who sacrificed his life for sinners. Christ-like sacrificial love changes lives. That type of love comforts the grieving. It gives companionship to the lonely. And it rescues broken marriages. And it saves people from lives and eternities in hell. 
Christ-like sacrificial love is more powerful than we could ever imagine. What does this love look like? It's an all-consuming love to God. It's a sacrificial love to others. Third and finally, this type of love is a complete trust in Jesus. I don't want us to miss out on the last part of this interaction between Jesus and this teacher of the law. Complete trust in Jesus. So after Jesus answers the question, there's this interesting back and forth between him and the teacher. Look at it, verse 32. The teacher goes, well said. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's a huge line. They stand in the shadow of the temple where sacrifices and burnt offerings are made every day. And this teacher of the law agrees with Jesus that loving God and loving people in this way is greater than all these burnt offerings, all these sacrifices. And again, this is not a new conclusion to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Mark. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 3. Doing what is righteous and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. God says, I desire loyalty, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So the teacher of the law speaks in line with God's ancient word. And then Jesus replies to the teacher, verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. What does Jesus mean by this? You're not far from the kingdom of God. Well, on the one hand, it's a positive statement from Jesus. He's approving the man's answer. He's encouraging the man. Look at Jesus here in this moment. This man belongs to a group of people who are antagonizers of Jesus, opponents of Jesus, but with this one who hears and who answers wisely, Jesus encourages. Jesus prods him along. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Your answer's right, but you're not all the way there just yet. What does the man lack? Jesus. He gets the love answer correct but he doesn't understand it in its fullness until his trust is in Jesus. To say he's not far from the kingdom of God could mean this. It could mean the kingdom of God is right in front of your face. Right here. And you're not going to love God totally and you're going to love people properly unless Jesus Christ is the center of your life. The one that you trust in for your salvation. Isn't it interesting that, that a person can agree with Jesus? You can agree with Jesus today that loving God and loving, loving others are the essence of Christianity, and yet you can still be on the outside looking in if you don't trust in Jesus Christ to save you from your sin. We can have all of our theological ducks in a row pass the test, know where to say amen, but if I haven't put all that I am and trust in Jesus. Well, then he's, he's not the Lord my God. He's the Lord, but he's not automatically my God. 
And that's the question that Jesus puts in front of us today. If we position ourselves as the teacher of the law in this story, the question to you is not, is he the Lord? That's true whether you acknowledge it or not. The question is, is he your God? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation? The reason you're separated from God in the first place is not because he's cold or indifferent to you. It's because all of us start out as sinners. Not polite sinners, not sinners with good intentions, but gross sinners. And our sin separates us from God. It's our fault. His judgment against us is guilty. That's right and true and deserved. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. We are dead in sin. We are by nature objects of wrath. But God, who's rich in mercy, full of compassion, loves you, sent his son Jesus Christ to die in your place. And by believing in him, trusting in him, salvation is yours now and forever. Jesus calls you. I've known a lot of people for whom this line would be true. You are not far from the kingdom of God. And I've had the joy of seeing seeing some of those people step into the kingdom of God by faith. And there are others that I continue to pray for. Say, God, bring them in. Don't let them be not far. Let them be in. Where are you today? Where's your soul? This could be the day that you step in by faith in Jesus Christ. So after what we've studied this morning, do you have a better idea of what love looks like? A more concrete understanding, I hope. What does it mean to love God and to love others? Well, the kind of love God is worthy of is an all-consuming love. It's a whole person love. And the kind of love that others need is a, a, a sacrificial love that's modeled after Jesus' sacrificial death for sinners like me and like you. And the key component to loving God and loving others is trusting in the love of Jesus for your salvation. This teaching uh, became foundational for the apostles after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And it's the heartbeat of the writings of the New Testament. And through it, we understand that it's also the heartbeat of the Old Testament as well. But it's this teaching that led the Apostle John to write in 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. Do you love God? If so, how do you know? Do you love people? If so, how do they know? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this kind of love that you have given to us, a love that loved us first, 
Not a love that was earned or a love that was owed, but a love that is freely given. Father God, thank you for this kind of love. Thank you for this love that's seen through the gift of your son who laid down his life at the cross for our salvation. And I pray this morning that no one in this room would be left not far from the kingdom of God. Let this be the day that by faith we step in. I pray for my brothers and sisters in the faith that as you sanctify us that we would more and more love you with all of who we are. Holding nothing back, not giving you any half measure, but Lord, loving you with the whole of our being. And God, let us love much the people around us to see them as your image bearers, to see them in their worth and value that is given by you. And Lord, let us risk much to love them all the way to the cross. Thank you for this kind of love that has saved us. Thank you for this kind of love that is saving those around us. Dear God, we praise your name. And we say to you, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.